electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to a special CEO Castle Summit edition of Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'll be with my friends. I'm just trying to help you make some money. My job, not just to entertain, but to teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Right now, we're playing out so many horrible scenarios that I thought we're over with and done with, but we weren't, which is why the Dow tumbled 256 points today, S&P lost 0.73%, and the Nasdaq declined 0.61%. I worry that this awful sense of deja vu is going to drive people out of the market once again. I'm talking about the rabbit hole of 2011 and the great COVID wave of 2020 to 2021. The first one's nauseating but also obvious given that 2020, 2011 was when we had that last true debt ceiling crisis. It was only natural to worry that history from 2011 would repeat itself, meaning that the situation would get a whole lot uglier before it got good. It, it's certainly getting uglier. The second one, COVID, the idea that it could become making a comeback and in huge numbers, some say as many as 50 million infections in a week in, yes, China has created a level of shock that's sending everything related to China down from Freeport McMoran, the giant copper producer, Starbucks, where they're opening a new Chinese store every nine hours. Of course, we can deal with COVID. We have lots of ways to make it less lethal. Here in America, it's almost become a rear guard action. But COVID here and COVID in China are two very different things. There's an awful lot of mystery about this new variant in China right now. We don't know if the government will shut things down. Apparently, they're saying they won't. We don't know if travel will be banned or restricted, although the casino stocks with exposure to Macau are trading like it's going to happen. And we don't know if the psyche of the recently ebullient Chinese consumer will be impacted. I was worried when I saw those numbers from Alibaba, the Amazon of China, but that was before this new COVID wave. Jeez. The worst part is that almost nobody even knows about this new COVID wave. I talked to dozens of people out here at this terrific conference, and I seem to be the only one who was even aware of it. That's kind of like back in February 2020 when I came on air and people looked at me as if I had five heads when I said an epidemic was coming. As it keeps spreading through China and possibly beyond, there'll be a sense of discouragement and disgust. The two D's that make people want to sell, sell, sell their stocks. All right, let's talk Washington. When you rewind the tape to look at the day-to-day action from the last debt ceiling negotiations in 2011, it's not good. We had a lot of optimism about a deal back then. We figured nothing could really go wrong with the debt limit because it had never really gone wrong before. The debt ceiling was always a formality. The idea that a bunch of elected officials could hate each other so much they'd be willing to destroy the government's credit rating just to prove a point, it seemed insane. The only point they'd really be making is that America is run by a bunch of morons and the full faith and credit of the United States government isn't worth the paper it's printed on. But they almost let it happen. Even though we ultimately got a deal and averted the worst-case scenario, the stand-up was enough to make the Standard & Poor's company downgrade our government debt. It was just so embarrassing. It caused a lot of selling, a lot of worry. This time, we're repeating all the same mistakes, except almost nobody's optimistic because we know how bad it can get. 
We're no longer in denial about the level of dysfunction in American politics. We're much more cynical and jaded these days. Now, I spent the last couple of days reading the archives from 2011, and several things jumped out at me. First, we got to a point similar to where we are now, when we sensed that things were really going off the rails. That was about a dozen trading days before they came to a deal, kind of where we ended last week this time around. During each one of these trading days, hope would be kindled at some point and then exhausted, and often, often several times within the same session. This time, the rhetoric's mostly about how people might not get their Social Security checks or some Treasury auctions might fail. But last time, we focused on the ratings agencies as they leaked that the country would lose its top credit rating if something wasn't done and done quickly. There was tremendous fear that a downgraded Treasury would would be a sold Treasury and interest rates would shoot dramatically higher. At the same time, there was a widespread belief that our economy would go into recession the moment the government defaulted and it would get worse every single day. There was no agreement. Now, both yesterday and today, we're reminiscent of the period in 2011 because you'd have a couple of stocks, a couple of companies do well. See, you'd see something like we had uh, Palo Alto Networks on last night, PNW, which reported an amazing number. And then its stocks shot up big, but there'd be very little pin action for even the other cybersecurity companies, even off a classic role. You'd see a great quarter like we just got from Toll Brothers, but because there's, it's a home builder, that industry's in the crosshairs of the debt ceiling morass, it rallies, but much less than it would have otherwise. You know what? I actually wonder if we won't see the same one-off action in the stock of the amazing NVIDIA, the incredible AI kingpin, which crushed the numbers better than any large capitalization company I can recall in 2023 when it reported tonight. I tell club members, CNBC investing club members, they know it. NVIDIA, own it, don't trade it. An honor I hold only for Apple and NVIDIA, and I reiterate that stance right now. But will the huge move in NVIDIA be able to buck the budget undertow? Not if things get real nasty. Back then, as we got closer and closer to the default date where the government wouldn't be able to send out the checks, a disputed date, by the way, because the Republicans kept saying we have more time than the Democrats did, the market just grew uglier and uglier and uglier. Like then, this market's choosing to take apart the industrials and the financials. But as the market started to really get hit, as the game of chicken in Washington got ever more dire, Washington took everything down in the end. Today on my morning meeting, home stretch shows with Jeff Marks, the ones you can watch if you join the CBC Investing Club, I actually pondered whether, given what we know about 2011, it would actually be possible for some members to sell out and then get back in, avoid some declines, particularly in the industrials and the financials, rather than just keep taking the darn beating. Honestly, as someone used to trade for a living many, many years ago, I can see how you might want to do that. We just aren't oversold enough to bounce on the traditional market edge oscillator I use to measure if there's too much selling pressure. The complacency is actually pretty strange, given the 2011 script, i got to admit. Plus, right about at this point, the 2011 debt ceiling debacle, we started hearing from journalists with dubious sources that there were really only eight more days worth of basically hidden cash that could tide us over. That's what made things drag on back then, even as we did ultimately reach a deal on the eve of the original X day. I would hate to advise you to sell and then buy back later. Uh, we don't know if you'll be able to get back in after the all clear sounded. Real nimble people can probably dodge maybe several percentage points, maybe five, six, seven, maybe more. But if you aren't nimble or don't want to take those gains, I say get ready for your politicians to lose you some more money until this is over. Bottom line, they hurt you then. They aren't done hurting you now. But unless you trade full time, it's very hard to get out and get back in early enough for it to make a difference, which means most of us just need to take the pain recognizing that a month after the debt catastrophe was averted in 2011, we were much higher and made a ton of money together. Dustin in Oklahoma, Dustin. Booyah, Jimmy Chill. How you doing, sir? 
right. The chill man's doing well. How about you? I'm doing fantastic. It's good to talk to you again, sir. Thank you. Hey, I, my question my question tonight is about one of our club names. I uh, am one of our charter club members, and my portfolio leans a little bit more tech-heavy, which has been really fantastic this year. But I've been considering a name uh, in our portfolio for quite some time. It's an industrial growth. And just don't know when a good time to pull the trigger with the debt ceiling right now. I wanted to know your thoughts on uh, when to pull a trigger on Caterpillar. All right. I, I think Caterpillar is terrific. Uh, the way the debt talks to God, I was hoping, and you shouldn't hope, shouldn't be part of the equation, that Caterpillar would begin to rally on all the stimulus money. But at the same time, I thought the debt, uh, I didn't think it would get this bad. I think you got at least four or five more days for it. You, you can see Caterpillar lower. And I don't want you to get in uh, and then say, why did Chill say buy it here when he knew it's going lower? So I do think the cat could have more downside. And then you then you will have to buy some. I'm going to Ian in Illinois. Ian. Jimbo, how you doing, my friend? I'm getting hot. How about you? Yeah, I hear you. It's beautiful in Chicago today, so I'll take it. Uh, but hey, listen. All right. I, What's happening? Yeah, I am 31 years old and I'm trying to balance my portfolio with some riskier upside plays as well as some cash flow producing investments. And one of my favorite cash flow stocks is Realty Income. So I'm looking for your thoughts on the health of the company, where it might be headed amidst uh, this that, I, Realty Income, letter O, is fantastic, Ian. It's a terrific company. It stood the test of time. I think you get those monthly dividend checks. I think you are one. I think you got horse sense. All right. If you don't want to sell in the face of the debt ceiling deadline, then get ready for some more volatility because it might get ugly in Washington. Man, tonight, Cadence shares are up a whopping 382% over the past five years, while the S&P is only up 50. I'm talking with the CEO about the company's outperformance. And I'm checking up on a comeback story that we've been watching closely in the utility space, PG&E, to see if its recent pullback could be a good opportunity for investors. And Snowflake shares melting after earnings. I got the exclusive with the CEO when this special edition of Mad Money from the CNBC CEO Summit continues. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact, smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Now that the semiconductor stocks are stirring, let's talk about a key partner for the chip makers. One of that seems to share the industry's success in good times without suffering as much during the bad times. I'm referring to Cadence Design Systems, which makes software that helps semiconductor companies design their chips. They can also help design other types of electronics and even help enable new drug discovery via biosimulation. Over the past five years, this stock's been a serial outperformer. It's up 382%, while the Philly Sox Index has rallied just 126% during the same period. Hey, by the way, last year when the semis were awful, down 35%, Cadence was off only 14%. This year, it's been outperforming again, up 27% for 2023, even after pulling back a bit over the last month. Cadence may be the greatest semiconductor stock you've never heard of, but should have. How do they keep pulling it off? Let's check in with Anarud Devgan. He is the president and CEO of Cadence Design Systems. You get a better read on the story. I am so glad I came to this conference, and Mr. Devgan did too, so that I can meet you in person. <laughs> Welcome to Mad Money. Thank you, Jim. It's great to be here. Well, big fan of your show. Oh, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Well, I've revered your company for many, many years, mm-hmm. and, but I always felt that it would be too hard I, 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 first, I said, well, I don't know if Cadence ever cares about the show, but it's a hard company for many of us to understand. So maybe you could, because it's your inaugural, and I hope you'll be on many times, walk us through some of the key things that you do. Absolutely, absolutely. So what we do, basically, is we make software to design chips and electronic systems. So this is mathematical, computational software, because these ch- chips are pretty complicated. Right. It's probably the most sophisticated things humans have ever built. You know, these chips are at one nanometer, two nanometer, and all the systems that they drive. So we make the software because these chips are too complicated to be designed by hand. They're designed by numerical software, okay? And almost any chip designed in the world today uses some form of cadence software. And so we are, we are glad to be working across multiple end markets with all, with all the major companies in the world to drive the next version of semiconductors, the next version of innovation that's happening. All right, so tomorrow night, my friend David Faber, my colleague's got a, a we're going to run, again, his amazing interview with Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. And Elon Musk is telling that his, his cars are filled with, with tech, mm-hmm. filled with semiconductors. But he's a car guy, but he's also a space guy. At a certain point, doesn't he need a cadence to make it all work? Yeah, all the, actually, that's absolutely right. So if you look all around you, whether it's cars, whether it's phones, mm-hmm. whether it's all the cloud infrastructure, even your washing machine has a lot of chips. Okay. And all these chips are getting faster and faster. And that's what is also driving all the AI revolution. So all these chips have to be designed. And they have to be designed very, very accurately, you know, to give better performance to better power. Right. And we are the software that enables the design of these things. Now, where are you in terms of uh, 
the CHIPS Act. And the reason I mention this is because mm. I think a lot of people mistake the fact that we actually do have the what's most important thing about CHIPS, which is mm. the intellectual property, mm. software and hardware. Yes, some of them are made overseas. But the CHIPS Act, I think, could be a, revol- a revolution for this country, and you'd be deeply involved in it. Absolutely. You know, U.S. is the one who invented semiconductors yeah. about 60 years ago. And we still have leadership in software and design, you know. And it's great to see the, the government investing in manufacturing. And also it's good to see that the investment is not just in manufacturing, but also R&D. So we need to manufacture things, you know, like advanced node for, for cloud and AI, but also mainstream nodes for automotive. But it's also important to invest in the next generation of manufacturing, which is going to be, you know, multiple chips in a package. You know, what we call 3DIC, you know, chiplet-based design. Right. And Cadence has, has a leadership position in, in package design software along with chip design software. So it's very important to invest not just for manufacturing today, but for R&D, for manufacturing for the future. Okay, so how do I make it so that I minimize the number of things I screw up on, that I try to get it first or at least close to first, because otherwise I miss my next six years of my company? Exactly right. So I think what is critical in what is known in our industry is what is called first time right. Because these things are so complicated and the cost of iteration is so high. So if you take three or four iterations to get it right, then you can miss the whole market window. So what that means is that during the design process, not after manufacturing, but during the design process, you have to do a lot more simulation and emulation and verification using software, using our product, so that when the chips comes out, it is working first time right. And some companies are great at it, and they are the ones who are really successful in this market. Now, can you also be uh, applications to aerospace and defense? Because I think that that's where we have to be quick. Absolutely. You know, a few years ago, we invested a lot more in aerospace and defense. And there are two ways, actually, we work with these system companies. And, you know, aerospace and defense to me is a system company. Right. You know, just like a car OEM is a system company or a phone company is a system company. So what is unique and new about Cadence is not only we work with all the semi companies, but now 45% of our revenue is coming from system companies because they are doing more and more chip design. You know, there's this merger of system and semi because you can really differentiate, you know, based on your workload, you can really customize your silicon solution. And so we are glad to work with all the leading system companies, including in aerospace and defense. And the second thing we are doing is, you know, all the mathematical computation software we have to design chips can also be used to design cars and and systems because they need more automation and more simulation. So we have a new effort to simulate cars, aerodynamics, you know, simulate power and thermal issues, which are huge for data centers and all electronics. But one thing you don't simulate is profits. A lot of the companies that are fast growing, they didn't care about profitability. They said, listen, we don't want to sacrifice growth. Your company has had unbelievable growth and at the same time, extraordinary profitability, which is why I believe in the down cycles, you far outperform the industry. Yeah, we always had focus on both growth and profitability. This is not new for us. We always focus on it. And also make sure that the other thing is we are a a software company which is mostly writable. So vast majority of our revenue is recurring in nature. So for that reason, we can also invest in R&D. So not only we are very profitable, we invest about 35% of revenue in R&D, 
That's one of the highest investments. Well, I'm going to have to do a show just to explain to people that that is the most, that's the highest I have heard of anyone who's ever come on the show. Exactly. Highest. Mm -hmm. I want to thank Andrew Devgan. He's the president and CEO of Cadence Design Systems, CDNS. I have wanted this company. We've been on for, it's our 19th year, and we finally get that view on. I hope you come back. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Mad Money's back after the break. Coming up, California's major utility has been shining. And Kramer has a few bright ideas why. Next. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, The ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash Business Gold Card. Last December, we looked at over the best foreign stocks in the S&P 500 by sector. And much to my surprise, the second best performing utility was PG&E, the parent company of Pacific Gas and Electric. But after digging deeper, it became clear this once terrible operator, the worst, has become one of the greatest comeback stories there is. Remember, the old PG&E was infamous for inconsistent numbers, starting wildfires, had to declare bankruptcy in 2019 because it owed so much to the victims. When it emerged from bankruptcy in mid-2020, the new PG&E's largest shareholder was a trust representing those fire victims. And then they brought in a new CEO, Patty Poppy, in early 2021, and she's proven to be a tremendous turnaround artist. We invited her on the show last December, and she joined us for an interview a week later, laying out her plans to reduce both financial risk and wildfire risk. PG&E is now spending a fortune building out underground transmission lines as part of a push for climate-resilient infrastructure. After that interview, I was sold. Since then, I know stocks only up about 3%, but that's much better than the more than 7% loss for the utility sector ETF over the same period. So tonight, while we're out here in California, although many a bit south of PG&E's coverage zone, I want to check up on the story because until a couple of weeks ago, PG&E had been on a roll. When PG&E reported in late February, they put up some decent results and reiterated their full-year forecast for 2023. company racked up 10% earnings growth last year. They're on track to do roughly 10% growth again this year. At the same time, the company performed very well during a period of major storms in January. This is not the old PG&E. 
We got another steady set of numbers three weeks ago, ago uh, reinforcing the idea that this is a more consistent, more dependable PG&E. They gave us a set of perfectly in-line results, which may not sound very impressive, but PG&E isn't trying to blow the numbers away. They just want to prove that, unlike the old days, they can deliver regularly on their financial targets. Manager also reiterated a previously issued outlook calling for at least 10% core earnings growth in 2024, followed by at least 9% growth in 2025 and 2026, which would be very impressive for utility. Be impressive for any company. They also don't plan to issue any new stock at least through 2024. That's why PG&E stock ran up nearly 3% over the following week. On top of that, everything else, in late March, we got a much clearer wildfire mitigation plan for the next few years. It's some encouraging storm response data, important given that California's had an awful lot of weather lately. On the flip side, all the rain has been a boon to PG&E's hydroelectric power assets, which are considerable. They've also been winning some legislative victories in California, including the passage of a law that will allow PG&E to keep running its Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant. Regular voters know that I am a huge fan of nuclear because I think it's the only serious way to cut down on carbon emissions in the short run. At the same time, PG&E has made real progress with cost cuts. Management said they're getting closer to paying a dividend again, which had to be discontinued way back in 2017 because of the wildfire litigation. Now, one qualm I've had with this stock is the fact that the Fire Victims Trust owns a major chunk of PG&E, and they regularly sell huge blocks of stock to raise cash to compensate people for the fire damage. So every time PG&E stock starts getting some momentum, the trust goes in there and knocks it down. For example, in April, they sold 60 million shares at $16.25 apiece. PG&E stock had been traded $16.82 the day before. But rather than selling off this time, the stock was actually able to rally over the next few weeks. That's an important signal. Why? Because investors are finally seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. The Fire Victim Trust originally owned 478 million shares of PG&E. Now, gloriously, it's down to just 128 million shares. They're not even the largest shareholder anymore. They're the fifth largest. Even if they want to keep selling on u- in huge blocks, giant blocks, they can only do that a couple more times, and then they're going to run out. Oh, will that be fabulous. This is something Patty Poppy was asked about in the most recent conference call, and she said we're close to the end of the Fire Victim Trust sale. The trust only owns a little more than 6% of PG&E now. It's been such a little in this stock. So that gets rid of the most major overhang I've seen in utility. Nevertheless, this one's come under pressure over the last couple of weeks. In fact, it's going down six of the last eight trading days. But that's not for any company-specific reason. You can look. Nothing bad's happened to PG&E, the company. Instead, it's been dragged down by its sector. You might think the utilities, classic recession-proof stocks, would do well during the run-up to the debt ceiling deadline. It hasn't happened. In fact, the utilities have been very weak. Why? Because bond yields have been spiking, which is what you'd expect if people are worried about a government default. And when bond yields go up, dividend stocks, like most utilities, go down because they're less enticing in comparison. I think that's causing people to sell the utility ETF, which then hammers the whole group, including this one. But it makes no sense to sell PG&E on higher interest rates because PG&E doesn't even have a dividend right now. How could its yield look worse compared to treasuries when nobody owns it for the non-existent yield in the first place? There was also some noise in the story yesterday when it was reported that the company had withdrawn a planned loan amendment transaction. But you know what? We've worked into this. We don't think it's anything worth worrying about for the common stock. The stock barely got dinged in the report, and we suspect that, if true, this would have been more to do with the skittish debt capital markets ahead of the debt ceiling than anything having to do with the company PG&E itself. In the end, I think the recent pullback in PG&E is giving you the buying opportunity you want. 
Today, they're hosting Investor uh, Day event. And given that management's given pretty specific earnings guidance for 2026, I don't expect many big announcements at all in terms of any new financial targets. But the bottom line, I hope this Investor Day can reignite some of the enthusiasm for PG&E stock and what Patty Poppy's done here, because this is now a great growth utility with an incredible comeback story that simply isn't getting the love it deserves. This story is phenomenal. Just phenomenal. Let's take calls. Michelle in California. Michelle. Hey, Jim. Welcome to California. Um, oh, I love it here, Michelle. It? I love it. What's going I'm on? Here. <laughs> anyway, I'm a longtime watcher of Mad Money, and I'm a member of the club. Thank you. And I just want to thank, thank all you. of you, you, Jeff, and the team and everything. So, thank I'm you. calling about American Tower. Last year, I took over control of one of my IRAs. And AMT came with it. It was up about 40% at the time, so I held it, even though I don't understand their business model. And I figured tower services were right. a necessity in spite of the economy. But now I'm in the red for 20%. So I was hoping you yeah, could well, tell me what they do, why they're down, sure. and should I sell it and cut my losses? Okay. I, I, look, I, I completely understand why you would want to own it, because the tower industry is a growth industry, because the more uh, more cell phone towers go up, better the service. That, that's been uh, an amazing thing. But, you know, Verizon's not doing that well, and ATT's not doing that well, so maybe they won't put up as many towers. And it turned out that this had much more interest rate risk than we thought. When interest rates go up, people are selling the tower stocks. It's not just AMT. You do own the best one. I would not sell it here, but I've got to tell you, it is no longer going to have the growth that it used to have when ATT and Verizon had strong balance sheets and put up a lot more cell towers. Let's go to Carolyn in Minnesota. Carolyn. Hi, Tim. Booyah. And thank you for having me on the show. Booyah. Hey, I've got a question regarding 3M and their ongoing legal challenges. And I'm wondering, do you think it's a good sign that the Florida judge is asking the CEO, Mike Roman, to attend mediation and earplug litigation and that the stock has some potential growth as an outcome? Or do you Um, think this is just uh, another uh, phase in a protracted legal battle driving the stock further down? Another season protractedly. No, it, it's bad. Um, both the combat arms, uh, which involves tinnitus and deafness and vets, and the groundwater situation. Uh, no, they're just, I'm not saying they're insurmountable. I, I just say you can't, you can't own the stock. They did increase the dividend by a penny. It's still a dividend aristocrat. But my father worked for 3M, and very proud company. But no, those litigations, they're too hard. It's too hard to own that stock. All right, the recent pullback in PG&E is giving you a great chance to buy into the utility's phenomenal turnaround story because I don't think management is giving the credit they deserve. Much more man money at Snow's falling after earnings, but I got the exclusive with the CEO, Frank Slootman, fresh off its report. Plus, last night's report from Toll Brothers was illuminating, especially to Jay Powell. So what's the key takeaway and what lies ahead and how to keep housing prices down? I'm going to give it to you. And of course, all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer.
All right, what the heck just happened to the stock of Snowflake, the cloud-based data management analytics play? It's one of my faves. While Snowflake got hit hard last year with other cloud software stocks, it had been making a nice comeback in 2023. That is until tonight. After the close, Snowflake reported a really solid quarter. Good earnings beat, higher than expected sales, up 48%. Unfortunately, the guidance for the current quarter came up short. They also cut their full-year forecast for both product revenue and operating income. Now the stock's plummeting after hours trading. This is confusing to me. What's going on? Why don't we take a closer look? with Frank Slootman, the straight-shooting chairman and CEO of Snowflake. Find out more. Mr. Slootman, welcome back to Mad Money. Great, Jim. Good to be back on the program. All right. So, Frank, you've taught me a couple things. One of them is, is that the guidance is just the guidance. What matters is how the company's doing. This was a fantastic quarter. You, you're making money far ahead of when I thought you could make money. The quarter had up a level of retention of customers that is just amazing, 151%. Should I be, my takeaway is, is that Snowflake is doing far better than, than anyone thought, and I can make up my own guidance. I don't necessarily have to rely on what the company's saying. Do you think I'm off my rocker by doing that? No, I, th- I think you should uh, take our guidance seriously. You know, we've been public almost three years uh, now, and uh, whatever, 10, 11 quarters that we have reported, we're pretty good in, in giving quarterly guidance, um, so it's uh, it, it's something that I would take seriously. Yeah. All right, well, then, if that's the case, Frank, I've got to wonder whether there's a, a macro slowdown, there's competition. Maybe you want to keep others out of the business because you want it to yourself, which, which I like because I think your model's terrific. What, what are the causes behind the estimate cuts then? You know, the, the sentiment in the marketplace is, is really quite strenuous. I mean, one of the, the, the things that's going on, and we've seen it uh, progressively increase uh, really since Q4, is that the CFO is in the business now. And you see that rarely in, in enterprise software, that the CFO is really looking at everything that's taking place. And then it goes one step further to start telling the business how much they can spend and uh, figure out how you're going to make it all fit. And uh, very forceful very, uh, very direct. And uh, that, that reflects a lack of visibility uh, on their part, uh, certainly a level of anxiety as well. Uh, we certainly have been in, a, in an era of optimization, which is fine. That's just doing, doing the same stuff, but doing it more efficiently. But also rationalization. We're saying, look, you know, we're only going to spend this much and that's all there is to it. There's a lot of excitement and demand in, in the middle ranks with, with chief technology officer and chief data officers. When you get to the top of the house, it's a whole different ballgame. But, Frank, as between signing a long-term contract with a typical cloud company versus versus your model, or I can use it by consumption, I think that you represent a substantial bargain versus the others. I mean, when it gets to the CFO level, does the CFO understand that your model is probably better for that company than the longer-term signing? Well, that's also the reason why, they are, why they're looking for us, because we actually have a model where they can actually impact the cost. There's nothing that they can do, you know, about a subscription model. That cost, they're going to have to eat it no matter what. So we're actually one of the few places you can go and actually affect uh, current period expense. Yeah. Well, at the same time, I mean, they'll go to Snowflake Summit, okay? They will see your new products. They will get more intrigued. Maybe we get back to where – look, you can't take the CFO out of the equation because there is a lot of craziness in the world. But I like to think that new products from you, a person who knows how to make people money if they hire you, could change the equation a bit and make me, uh, let's say, t- uh, temper negativity. Yeah, you know, look, macro sentiment, it, it, it's going to change. It's going to run its course. Um, you know, we're going to get out of this 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 mode. You know, we're in it for for a period of time. 
And uh, that's just the nature of things. Uh, we had tremendous, uh, you know, growth in 2021 and, and, and all these timeframes. We're on, the, we're on the other end of that spectrum right now, but we're not going to stay there. We're going to reconverge, you know, to a much more, you know, robust pattern. If you, if you were to zoom out a little bit and say, let me take a five-year view of the growth here, it is tremendous, you know, and there are very large, you know, secular trends, very big markets are, are forming here. And we can't lose the sight of that by, you know, by looking at a, a single period. So I'm, I'm super optimistic, you know, about the, uh, you know, the, the path that we're on. I'm, I'm glad you say that because I just think it, if I were in the shoes, say, of Darius Adamczyk at Honeywell, I would do what he did. He over, overhauled his whole data strategy with you. We, Darius has been on our show many, many times, and we all know Honeywell well. Why don't you tell them the value proposition that Honeywell saw that they went with you for? Yeah, I mean, that was actually a really good story. I mean, they went through, like everybody else, through these enormous inflation spike. And, of course, you know, a, a company like Honeywell with, with three and a half, four million different SKUs, they have tremendous inventories that had to get repriced in near real time, or they would have become an, uh, literally an existential threat to the to the company. And because they had all their data and Snowflake, they were actually able to do that. And you're, you're right, that, that becomes a CEO-level issue. I mean, we're talking about uh, enormous risk, enormous exposure, and uh, they were able to manage that very successfully. So that was a tremendous story, how data supported the business through incredible disruption through inflation. Now, I also understand that people are building uh, native apps to run inside Snowflake's uh, governor's perimeter. I know that that also is a sign that you that you are getting embedded in a lot of different companies. Uh, how is that process going along? Yeah, we're going to be making uh, you know big announcements and, and we're going to be showcasing that. We've been working on it for years. It's really important to run applications within the Snowflake perimeter as opposed to outside of it. It has to do with, with right. security, it has to do with compliance, operational simplification, all these kinds of things. We just just been working for years to enable them make that possible. So, um, you know, Snowflake is becoming much more of an operational hub in addition to being a data hub. So a lot of core operational processes are going to be running through our platform. You yourself are an operator and you are no BS operator. People come to you and they say, listen, we want to uh, help us with generative AI. Can you help us with, uh, with, with machine learning? What do you tell them? Do you say that your model is actually very good for, for, to learn uh, for generative AI? Or is it just one model is no different from another when it comes to artificial intelligence? No, the, the models all, all train on data. So we're, we're experiencing tremendous gravitational pull. I mean, these workloads want to come to us because we have highly curated, highly optimized data. I mean, we are just the best place uh, to, to train these models on and to deliver these experiences and these kinds of impact. So in addition to being a data company, you know, we're also rapidly becoming an AI company. Uh, it's very exciting because, you know, we, we went public with the tagline mobilizing the world's data. And now we now have opportunities to mobilize data in ways, you know, uh, we could not have foreseen just a few years ago. So are you actually excited about AI? I mean, look, you can tell our viewers because, again, you're no nonsense. If you say you've seen like, something like this before, it's not like the iPhone, it's not like the Wintel, uh, tell us. Or do you think it really is something that's just very special that's going to change our world? It's very special. You know, I still remember when search became a, a real thing about 25 years ago. You know, I could only wish I was 19 again. I would be in school and have these kind of capabilities at my fingertips. I mean, the speed of learning. Um, and back then, we had to go to a library to do the most strenuous things, right? So I, I think this is incredibly empowering to individuals and to industries. 
and to literally everything that moves. So we're, we're super excited about it, you know, at Snowflake, because this is what we're here to do. All right. Well, look, my enthusiasm is not doing it all for, for, for your company or for your work. And I'm very encouraged by what you just said about AI. That's Frank Slootman. He's chairman and CEO of Snowflake SNOW. Thank you, Frank. Great to see you. You bet. Thanks, Jim. Man, buddy's back after the break. Coming up, it's a blue sky lightning round from Santa Barbara. And there's not a cloud in the sky. Next. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. How did you know that? Well, occasionally, I actually... Man, you just come to play every day, don't you? I, I, I try. I can't keep up with you, but I try. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. Jim Kramer, the diehard of the dollar. Hey, Jimmy, love the show. My five-year-old grandson. Love to watch your show. I have to thank you for making us money when it's there to be made. Our world is a better place with you in it. It is time. It's time for a special CEO Council edition of the Lightning Round Thursday, everybody. Stay close, my friend. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski? That is over the lightning round. Let's start with Gabe in Texas. Gabe. Howdy from Saginaw, Texas, Jim. Great to talk with you. I read uh, Confessions of a Street Addict 20 years ago when I was in high school. Uh, my question for yeah, you is... should have banned that book in the state of Texas. should have been banned. What's up? <laughs> my question for you is... Uh, Richie Brothers uh, Auctioneers, now known as RB Global. We like Richie Brothers. We like the merger. We like the CEO. Nothing but net. I think she's fabulous. Let's go to Trey in Texas. Trey! Chill, Meister. I got a quick question for you, buddy. Do you think Matthew Prince... I'm feeling chill. Look out. What's up? Do you think Matthew Prince can ride on the backs of Eagles Wings and click Cloudfare back up to $80? Well, I don't want to mention the Eagles in the same breath because that would imply that it's like maybe like he's going to be rejected by Harry, like Harry Rosen, like he's a University of Georgia dog. But I do think that Matthew can get that stock back to 80. I think it was just a couple of bad quarters and it's all back together. Stock should be higher. Hey, let's go to Christopher in California. Christopher! Boo, 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 boo. Yeah, Jim Kramer. First time calling. Happy Wednesday to you. Classic um, I want to thank you to our knowledge over the years. Um, question for today is uh, increasing deposit, observing last earnings, earnings report. What are your thoughts on this outstanding dividend yield bank stock? Take a symbol BOH, Bank of, Bank of Hawaii. Right now, I'm only recommending two bank stocks. I'm recommending Wells Fargo because it's got good yield and good capital, and Morgan Stanley because it's got good deal. None of the regionals. They're just too darn hard. I got other ways I can lose money for people. How about Nick in Arizona? Nick! Booyah, Jimmy. Jimmy, chill. I'm Nick's here in coming Arizona, to play. loving the Nick weather. My company helps farmers grow bigger yields. I want to know if it's going to make me grow bigger money. Mosaic, MOS. No. Dave in New York. Dave. I mean, I should have gone long about that mosaic. I don't like that stock. Dave. Hello. Dave, you're up. Come on, man. 
Hi, Kramer. Dave from New York. How you doing? Doing well. How about you, Dave? What's up? Very good. Very good. Uh, long-time fan and watcher. Uh, Jim, I wanted your opinion on Gillian okay. Science. I'm, uh, I'm in it for the long haul. I've owned it for about now, five Gillian years. Now, Gillian Science has been at 79. This thing is like, no. The answer is this stock is like, it's like got epoxy on its feet. We want stocks to go higher. Just something I just believe in. Let's go to Patrick in Washington. Patrick. Hi, Jim. Back in 2020, your COVID-19 index helped me outtrade my salary and buy an engagement wife for my ring. So I just wanted to thank you for that and all the years Thanks. of guidance. Thank you. My question, much, yeah, much, much. Uh, my question is on lending for you. At 20 a share, is it a bargain? The chart indicates it may be prime for a reversal. No, again, I'm just sheet. caught up on this idea of, of wanting to buy stocks to go higher. As long as I got that predilection of wanting to go up and not down, we're going to have to stay away from the lending tree. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, Kramer learned something last night from a key home builder that you won't want to miss. Make sense of mortgages next. The Federal Reserve spent over a year slamming the brakes on the economy. Yet almost nothing's moving the way the Fed wants it to. People are still willing to shell out 5Gs for a ticket to Lisbon, like they're waiting for the last flight out of Vichier or Casablanca. They don't plan to pay enough for cocktails or wine when they couldn't even afford a Diet Coke four years ago. Now they're even buying brand spanking new million-dollar homes from Toll Brothers, slapping down $85,000 down payments and not even thinking twice about it. You know, there, there's, almost, there's, there's almost nothing the Fed can do about this. Notice I said, though, almost. You see, if the Fed were to take short-term interest rates to 10%, they could put the old kibosh in the entire economy, canceling the vacations, closing the restaurants, and make it almost impossible to buy a home unless you can pay cash up front. While we want the Fed to win the war against inflation, you and me, we want that. We don't want them to destroy the entire economy in order to make it happen especially when inflation is already coming down big from its highs. We're going to lose some big inflation months and two months from now. It's going to look like we have almost no inflation. But you know what hasn't come down enough? Well, I got to tell you, in certain categories, it may just not be able to at all. Yeah, a couple of real special ones. Airfare. Over a decade ago, the government let so many airline mergers go through that it transformed the entire industry. Now there's simply not enough competition so the airlines can get away with murder. The government's trust busters were asleep at the wheel. All right, how about the bountiful feast? Now, I still think that's the long-on money, short-on-time thesis at work that I keep telling you about. We had a couple of years where going to a restaurant was either off-limits or an agonizing experience. Now we're no longer afraid for our lives. We're going to spend a fortune on meals. As someone who used to own two restaurants, I was shocked at how much more people were willing to spend per meal versus before the pandemic. But the only real change that I can figure out is, is that people are trying to live life to their fullest. I mean, in some cases, they were paying twice for the same food I was serving in 2019. But homes, homes are different. Sadly, local governments have tons of authority over preventing new buildings. So until we can figure out how to convince neighbors that it's okay to have a housing development down the street, housing prices simply won't be affordable. There are a host of reasons why housing prices won't bend to the Fed's will. First, we underbuilt for more than a decade in the wake of the financial crisis. Many smaller home builders failed to make it through the Great Recession. That's caused a deficit of roughly 3 million homes in this country. How the heck do you compensate for that kind of housing shortage, except through higher prices? Second, millennials are late bloomers to home ownership. 
But now they're the ones who are bidding over each other to get new homes and creating inflation in their wake. That's totally organic demand. Can't be stopped. Third, Doug Yearly, the excellent CEO of Toll Brothers, highlighted this morning in a terrific conference call that there's a lock-in phenomenon that is real. I, I've got to tell you, this is that vast majority of homeowners having a mortgage rate that's 5% or actually in many cases lower, and that discourages them from buying a new home because then they have a substantially more expensive mortgage. Try whatever the Fed can do. It can't fix that. Finally, the red tape that developers have to go through does discourage even the possibility of building enough new homes. It's worth it just to be able to buy back their own stock of the home builders. There are some pro-development states, municipalities, that are amenable to home building. But you know what? They're in the vast majority. I mean, I'm sorry, the vast minority. The vast majority doesn't want building. The vast majority says no more homes. And we don't know what to do about that. So what do we have here? We have the twin impacts. More pressure. Uh, higher on rents, therefore, which are in the consumer price index, and a seemingly unstoppable increase in home prices. I tell you, I, I rack my brains trying to figure out how to make this stop going up, and I can't. It is a huge problem, arguably a much worse problem than any other kind of inflation, because this doesn't get any more essential than shelter. But as Toll Brothers said last night, it's supply and demand. Supply simply cannot keep up with demand for housing right now. The only way to fix that is if the Federal Reserve goes nuclear on the economy. Otherwise, just pray the slowdown gets bad enough on its own that it starts to deter buyers. But right now, the Fed hawks are winning because there's no sign of that deterrence whatsoever. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash disclaimer. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.